We are really pleased whenever we get to see you up front and we uh, especially get to, to experience your gifts, and your abilities, and the uh, sort of expression of what the, the future of the church looks like in your faces. And so thank you very much. And to the Pathfinder leaders who did all the prep to make sure this happened. I know that uh, that's a lot of work. If you're a part of Pathfinders, if you teach a class for the Pathfinders, if you're one of the students, if you're one of the leaders, would you please stand this morning? Thank you. I think there are a couple more still out in the foyer and some doing some other things at this moment. But... Um, we're really, really thankful for you all. And uh, as most of you are aware, as many of you are aware, Pathfinders is the reason I became a member of the church, the reason I became a Christian. I was invited to come to this club. I had been a, uh, in Boy Scouts before. And lo and behold, at 13 years old, I, figured, I found out that there was a club that was a lot like Boy Scouts, but had girls and boys together. <laughs> and as I have told you, it, it was a definite improvement. And I met my wife. First night, Pathfinders, called her a day later, and she didn't know I had been there. It was not like there were a hundred of us. There were like 12 of us. But I, I stalked her until she gave up and finally said, okay, best move I ever made. Um, anyway, th- I, I just wanted to, to uh, introduce you, if you haven't heard of Pathfinders before, if you're visiting with us or new to this idea, um, this is a lot like Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, only again, it is, it is a com- combination of both young ladies and young men, and we are overtly Christian in the way we go about our business. Um, we have Pathfinder Sabbaths, like today, they have worship and prayer and do a lot of things that have to do with their spiritual lives as well as camping and outings and trips and stuff like that that have to do with the rest of their enjoyment and physical lives. And if you look at their sashes, you'll see a lot of the Pathfinders have merit badges. So you can see a lot of similarities between Boy Scouts, uh, Cub Scouts, Weeblos, Pathfinders, and Adventurers. Um, So just uh, if you have a question about it, ask one of the kids. They can tell you a little bit about it and uh, fill you in. If you're intimidated by little kids, ask one of these old guys in in a uniform. They can tell you as well. Um, any of you have a best friend when you were in elementary school? Most of us did, right? We had somebody who was like our best friend. I was, uh, I had, when I went off to kindergarten, my best friend was my little uncle. I have an uncle who's four days younger than I am. He's always been smaller than me. We were born. They called us the elephant and the mouse. And um, as we grew up together, he was my best friend. And then we separated. We went to different schools. And I went to a school for just, oh, I was probably only in that school about eight months. And then we transferred to a third school. So between kindergarten and second or third grade, I had been in three different schools. As I finished third grade, I moved into fourth grade with the threat from my third grade teacher that she was going to make sure I went into Miss Brindley's class because I was an unruly, loud, talk-too-much sort of a kid. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but... It wasn't exactly accurate. It had some accuracies in it, but it wasn't exactly accurate. And so um, they, they, they put me in Ms. Brindley's class, I'm sure at the, assistance, at the insistence of my third grade teacher, Ms. Assad. And um, they put me in the back of the class, which was where the teacher's desk was. I think, again, at the, at the uh, assist, insistence of Ms. Assad. 
And so they sat me in the corner in the back. The teacher's desk was right back behind us where she could see us all. And to my right on the back row as well, they put a brand new kid. His name was Glenn. And Glenn and I started visiting. I initiated the conversation because I, you know, felt like I needed to welcome him to our school. And as we started to chat a little bit, we became fast friends and we found out we lived less than a block from one another. And so we walked to and from school from fourth grade to twelfth grade. Actually, by the time we got to twelfth grade, we were driving in Glenn's 69 Camaro, which we put together on his driveway. We were best friends. We hung out in every way you can imagine hanging out for kids. We did everything together. We played baseball. We ended up being on different teams, so we often played against one another. Um, we played all, all through the summer. We played various things that we could gather enough kids to play. Football in the street, baseball on the concrete down at the school. Anything we could get a group of kids to do, we were doing it. We were on the roof of the school looking for things that got thrown up there. We'd been just everywhere you can imagine we did those things together. Major events in my life, my broken arm, Glenn was with me. Um, by the time I fell and gashed open my head, Glenn was with me. Everything that happened in those summer, in those years, between fourth grade and twelfth grade, we pretty much walked in parallel lines together. The reason I'm talking to you about this is because I want you to understand that when Jesus starts his ministry, he has three sort of inner circle best buddies, Peter, James, and John, always named first in the list of disciples. It's always in some order, Peter, James, and John, Peter, John, and James. Once in a while, Andrew gets thrown in there. I think he was like the, the little brother who, got, who everybody wanted not to play with you. You know, Glenn had an older brother. We excluded him because he was just not like us. He was older. And that made a big difference. He was, I think he was 18 months older. And so we kind of excluded him from hanging with us because we were us. And so I think Andrew gets thrown in once in a while as a side story, you know, kind of a, well, and then there was Andrew. We couldn't get rid of him that day. You know, we, we tried to leave him with mom. He wouldn't stay. So we had to bring him along. That list of three, we started last week with Peter. And we talk about Peter sort of as he stands by himself. But you have to think about Peter in this little triad. Because these three guys are the inner circle of Jesus. If, you, if Jesus has best friends, it's these three guys, plus who? Do you remember? Plus Lazarus. The Bible actually describes Lazarus as Jesus' friend. These people are the ones closest to him, tightest, the ones who spend the most time around him. We know a lot about Peter. We know a lot about John. We don't know much about James. So we'll fill in some gaps today. We're kind of working through some of the disciples we're asking the question as we work with the disciples, why these guys? Why these? What qualifies them to be disciples and apostles and the founders of Christianity? What makes these guys the chosen ones of Jesus? Okay? So as we talk a little bit about that today, John, or James has the name the Greater Thunder. If you look on Wikipedia, he's got three names. James the Greater, to, dis to, to sort of distinguish him from James the Lesser. So yeah, we wanted to tell you, there's two James, here's one greater, here's one lesser, probably a big one and a little one. He's called the greater thunder because Jesus names he and John, Bona, sons of thunder. It's going to give you the Greek, but I can't get it out of my mouth. He names them the, the sons of thunder, and so he's called the greater thunder. James, the bigger thunder, as if you needed more. 
Matthew chapter 5 gives a quick description of one of the places. This is when they're in Capernaum, they go to heal Jairus' daughter, and he says, He did not let, any, let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So John the Beloved, identified as James' little brother. We got Peter, your little brother Andrew. And we got James and his little brother John. Peter, James, and John. So we're going to talk a little bit about James this morning. We're going to kind of clear up some mysteries and some information. Just look at this interesting list here. This is in Acts chapter 1. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, the Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, who is also called Thaddeus. I put that in there so that you would be able to find out where he was. Now, we've got three James in this list. You start reading the Marys and the Jims in this stuff. It's very confusing. It can be very, can be very difficult to sort out the Marys and the Jameses. So here's just the ones that are most commonly known. James, the son of Zebedee. That's the guy we're talking about. Okay, James, the son of Zebedee, brother of John, fisherman, James, the greater, the greater thunder. James the Lesser. And again, this is probably James the Short. James the Lesser, son of Alphaeus. Okay? And then, James the author of the book of James. I wanted to put this in here so you would be clear on this. The apostle is not the same as the author of the book of James. Not the same guy. James the Apostle is James' brother of John. James the James who writes the book of James is the brother of Jesus, also known as James the Just. Got it? Clear as anything you can imagine, right? Now, do you, do you realize James is not, it's not a Hebrew name. There's no James in Hebrew. There's no, you, the word doesn't exist. There's nobody named James in Hebrew. So we get to this guy, St. James, who is also, by the way, the guy who San Diego is named after. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. James, Jaime, Diego. Okay, so I'm going to try, to try to walk this through. How does he get to San Diego? The English name James actually comes from the Italian Giacomo. A variant of Giacobo, which is derived from Iacobus, which is the Latin for Jacob. Follow? So what's his Hebrew name? Very good. The Greek... The Latin taken from the Greek is Jacobus. It's actually going to be more like Jacobus. It's an I-A sound. Jacobus. Or the original Hebrew, Yaakov. You got it? Got all that? Okay, wait, we're not done yet. In eastern Spain, in eastern Spain, Jacobus became Jacome. And then, Jaime. So anybody you know who's named James or Jaime, their real name is Jacob. You should just let them know. In western Spain, where they spoke a different dialect, it became Iago. Which, when prefixed with saint, or sant, became Santiago. Santiago, Spain. It's named Spain. This is the patron saint of Spain, Saint James, Saint Tiago. 
Doesn't make any sense at all. Those, none of these things seem, should be connected, but they are. And, we're not done yet. In Portugal, which is just on the neighbor, in the neighborhood, Iago became Tiago. Sant Iago became San Tiago. Stay with me. And is also spelled Diego. Therefore, in Southern California, they named a town after St. James the Apostle and called the town San Diego. <laughs> Clear as anything you can imagine. Right? In French, <laughs> Jacob became Jacques because the French like to do their own thing. And so, Jacques is also James, Jacob, Yaakov, the apostle, the older brother of John. So here's how that looks in a sentence. Jacob becomes Jacobus, becomes Jacobo, becomes Giacomo, becomes Jacob, becomes Jaime, Iago, Tiago, Diego, Jacques. That all equals James. No problem. Yeah, it is kind of entertaining, isn't it? You, you start looking this up online, you start trying to, to follow all of this information, you're reading these various, you know, you enter St. James and you get all these other names. You, you have to kind of put this together just to figure out who you're talking about. This is James the Greater, the son of, of uh, Salome and Zebedee, who is the brother of John, who is the apostle of Jesus and one of his inner circle one of his friends. And here's a little bit of the, of the information about this greater thunder. He was born in the early first century. We don't know exactly when. We know his brother was probably in his teens, so we assume that he's probably in his 20s somewhere. Okay? So John was a fairly young disciple. James is probably, or Yahov, was probably a little bit older. He's a missionary to Spain. I put a question mark by that because it, it has... It has a long sort of historical backing. There's a lot of history about he went to Spain, he went to Spain, he went to Spain. becomes the patron saint of, pain, of Spain. Uh, the, the, he's very, uh, very much venerated in Spain, but we don't have any biblical commentary about him being in Spain. That's why I put the little question mark there. Um, he's the fa his father is Zebedee, his mother is Mary Salome. This is the only one of the disciples we know, both father and mother. Okay? We know his parentage. Um, he died in the spring of 44 A.D., and he was killed by Herod Agrippa I, and he was the first of the apostles to be killed, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's the only one of the, the apostles' martyrdoms which is recorded in Scripture. It simply says, it was about that time the king Herod arrested, and it says, some of the disciples, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Okay? If you follow this chapter, you'll note the, an interesting sort of juxtaposition here. And it, 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 I like it because it speaks to some of our issues. Right at the beginning of the church, you have this happen. Now, this is probably about 10 years, 12 years, 13 years, something like that after the death of Jesus, depending on exactly when that all takes place. It's in the spring. It's in the Passover season. So it's really kind of on the, in the anniversary time of the death of Jesus. Stephen has died before this. He was killed, remember, when Paul was converted. We have King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, 
who is trying to make points with the Romans and with the Jews. He's trying to balance both of those groups. And so he grabs some of the disciples, some of the followers of Jesus, to try to build his political credibility. We know how that works, right? We have politicians all the time trying to build their political credibility. So he's trying to do the same. He has James killed, and it's so well received that he grabs Peter and throws him in prison shortly thereafter. Now, you remember the story of Peter, right? James is captured by Herod and killed. Peter is captured by Herod. He throws him in jail. He puts a guard of 16 men, four squads of four, to watch Peter. Peter is chained inside the jail to two guards. And an angel shows up in the middle of the night while the church is praying for Peter. This angel wakes Peter up. I love the way this, the Bible describes this. This angel shows up and it describes this bright light. Apparently Peter was a sound sleeper because the bright light did not wake him. The Bible says the angel had to shake him, had to, you know, hey, wake up, to get him awake, to get him to escape. Sometimes I think God has to do that to us, right? He has to kind of, come on, wake up. He has to wake us out of our slumber so he can get us to escape from our, our prisons. He, he walks them out past all of the guards. As they get to the, uh, the, uh, the, the final gate, it opens in front of them. Peter walks out into the night, not sure whether he's asleep or awake. The angel disappears. Peter finds himself standing outside the prison and realizes, this is not a dream. Read the text. That's, that's pretty much exactly what it says. Slightly paraphrased, but you know. That's what it says happens. Now, the part that, of this that strikes me as interesting and maybe a little difficult for the church is that the beloved apostle James was killed by Herod and Peter was rescued by angels. At that point, I have a question if I'm one of the disciples. Why couldn't you do that for James? Right? Why, why didn't you do that for James? Why didn't you step in on his behalf? This is kind of one of those things we deal with as a, as a church, as, as believers, as people who pray, right? We pray for God to intervene in the lives of people. Sometimes he says yes. Very often he says no. And when he says yes, we're left with the question, why this one, not that one? Right? Lord, why did you rescue Peter miraculously and powerfully from prison? And why did you let James die? I've been reading uh, Matthew chapter 14. I read really slowly. I go, I mean, I think I read four verses this morning, maybe three, about the, the uh, time when John the Baptist is killed and then the response of the disciples afterwards and the response of Jesus. If you follow through chapter 14 and 15, <clears throat> Jesus is trying to get away the whole time. You keep watching. He keeps moving to, from town to town, from place to place, trying to get away so he can have some time to deal with the death of his cousin, the death of, of the, the Isaiah prophet who had led the way for him, and he's constantly trying to get away. I'm, I'm into, I ended chapter 14 this morning. He still hasn't gotten away. <clears throat> he's gotten to another town, and another big crowd comes around. He'll get there. I know the story. I've read it before. But what I want you to understand is that the death of these people was not smoke in a vacuum. It was real, experiential, painful and true in the most gruesome, harsh way for the church. 
the people of God, the followers of Christ, had to go and collect the body of James from the prison of Herod and remove it so that they could bury him. So consider that experience and the chill it placed on the church when Herod started killing the disciples. And how frightening that must have been for them. If you remember the story, when Peter comes and knocks on the door, a young woman named Rhoda, who's a servant, answers the door. When Rhoda answers the door, she, does, she thinks it's one of Herod's uh, army or soldiers first. And then when she finds out it's Peter, when Peter is shouting through the door, no, it's me, Peter, which reminds me of a Cheech and Chong thing, which we'll talk about later. <laughs> Again, certain age, certain sort of lifestyle. Knocking on the door, she says, it's Peter, it's Peter, it's Peter. And she runs into the house and says, Peter's at the door leaving him outside. But initially they were hiding, they were fearful because of what had just happened to James. Because Peter had just been taken into prison. The church has never been without pain. It's always been true that we had questions about the, 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 the divine decisions of God. And we've been impacted by the losses of those around us. It was true for them, and I think you have to accept this as reality because we breeze by this stuff in these texts. You know, we read Acts chapter 2 and we go, and they killed James in prison with a sword. And we just go on to the next verse as if, okay, and then? But it was real powerful and, and painful for the church. And I'm certain that it brought up the question, why is Peter released miraculously? And why is James not? And I'm certain that the people who lived in that moment will be standing before the Lord at the end of time saying, I have a question. Could you explain why this happened? And so I want you to understand, I I want to embrace this for myself, that when we have questions about God's decisions, why this and not that, we're in the company of the saints and believers from the beginning to now. We have all had those moments And I'm thankful that God has a plan to answer those questions. So you know a little bit perhaps about these guys and about the call. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. Now he's had some interaction with these guys before. If you carefully follow the history and what's going on, there's some interaction with these guys before. Peter and Jesus have talked. James and John and Jesus have talked. Andrew, remember, brings his brother. He says, we think we found the Messiah. So he's walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon who is called Peter, and his brother, casting the nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he called them, and immediately, oh, sorry. And he went, went from there, and he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. So let's start with the, what we know about James from this little story. Just a, just a tiny snippet. James, John, Peter, and Andrew are apparently looking for the Messiah. What qualifies these guys? Why these guys picked? Start with piece piece number one. They are searching for the Messiah. They're looking for the Messiah. That's why Andrew can come to his brother and say, Hey, we found the Messiah. Do you find things you're not looking for? No. If you stop looking, you stop finding. Correct? It's very rare that you find something that you just stumbled across. You just happen to come across it. And even when we happen across something that we 
weren't really looking for and we find it, we have that energy, that moment of, oh, because it's something of value. He's, he's at least valuing the Messiah and I believe looking for the Messiah. That's why Andrew can say to his brother, hey, we found the Messiah. The we in this case seems to be John and Andrew, the two younger brothers coming and actually bringing along their older brothers, James and Peter. We found the Messiah. So can I say qualification number one, why these guys, why this guy? He's looking for the Messiah. They're looking for Jesus to come. They're actively considering that this might be the time when the Messiah would return. They've been reading Scripture. Scriptures, scriptures have been indicating that this is a possibility even to, the, to this date. They have been free. They have been free from any kind of outside government rule after they kicked the Greeks out about 200 years ago. The Romans have only recently moved in and began to control the region. And they're looking for a savior, for a Messiah to come along and boot out these guys again. They have a long tradition of this sort of thing, right? Since the judges, God has raised up rescuers and they know there's a promise of a final rescue and a final rescuer who will come in, throw out the government that's overwhelming them and that's, that's putting pressure on them, put them back on top in the political and religious world, and then all the world will run to them. That's the guy they're expecting. That's the guy they're looking for. That's the guy they think they understand the scriptures pointing to. And so James, John, Peter, and Andrew, at least those four seem to be looking for the Messiah. Qualification number one for these guys in their discipleship is they seem to be looking for Jesus. They look for the Messiah to follow. You become a disciple when you find the one you're wanting to follow. A disciple is a follower who molds himself after the one he's following. This has been the case throughout history before these guys. You remember Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, they each had followers. Aristotle's followers were literally followers because Aristotle started the teaching method where they would walk and talk. He would roam around and give lectures while they wandered around. I wonder how that was for taking notes. You know, clay tablet and a walking teacher. Probably was pretty tough. Uh, when, I was in, when I was in college trying to learn my Greek, the only way I could really seem to get this down, because it bored me to tears and I fell asleep most of the time while trying to study, I would go out into the forests around the college and I would walk around and learn my Greek, memorize the words. I'd just walk around reading vocabulary words, reading Greek declensions, which are... There are lots of them. Trying to learn the language. But something about walking and talking helped. Jesus' followers do the same thing. For three and a half years, they wander around. They talk, they observe, they sleep, they eat, they spend all of their time together. A disciple is following the one he's been looking for. Continuing on, these are three Jesus, or, uh, Jesus takes up on the mountain. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them again. I almost don't know how to, how to impress this idea on you. Imagine that somebody you really admire takes you, selects you as one of the three who's going on a special excursion. Would that be cool? So, I don't know, who pick who you admire, you know. They show up and they say, I, we have this whole room, but you three come with me. We're going to go do something. That immediately, you, you're, you're, you're the kid on the playground who got picked first, 
right? You get to go. You're one of the inner circle. One of the three says, you guys and I were going to climb this mountain. So come on. So the four of them climb to the top of this mountain all by itself. That's got to make Peter, James, and John feel special. James has to think, hey, this is kind of cool. Jesus picked me to climb the mountain. So that's awesome. So they do. They climb up to the mountain. They have no idea what's going on. They think they're going camping. They up the mountain. They go camping a lot. They go up to the top of the mountain. Beautiful views. Nice place. Okay, it's cool up here. Hey, this is nice. We got out of the warmth and heat from down below. Uh, the, great. Awesome. What are we doing? And then, before their eyes, Jesus is transfigured. And we go, yeah, sure. Happens every day. People are transfigured around me all the time. Lifted right off the ground turned into spiritual holy beings right before my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen it before. I've seen transformations in people's life, but transfigurations? Transfiguration means the figure, the form has changed. Not just their personality or their heart or even their spiritual life has changed. Their form changes. Jesus is transfigured right in front of them. He puts on the holy garments of the pre-Jesus Jesus. Is that, is, that, is that getting through, kind of penetrating a little bit? He now looks like he looked before he came. When Jesus is transfigured in front of them, he looks like God before he put on the Jesus clothes. Got it? So Jesus is transfigured into a, to a holy being in front of these three guys. Do you think you would go down the hill the same as you went up? No way. You, you could not be the same guy after that. You have seen Jesus put on the holiness that was his before he came to earth. You have seen Jesus looking more like a God than a man. He's transfigured right in front of them. And just because this wasn't cool enough, Moses and Elijah show up. I don't know how they know them. Name tags? You know, Moses is carrying a copy of the commandments. I don't know. Elijah's, you know, building altars. I don't know. I don't know how they know which one's which, but they know. And Moses and Elijah start to talk to Jesus. So now you have transfigured Jesus, Elijah and Moses visiting. You see, we we read the scriptures way too flatly. We do not allow our imaginations to enter into this conversation. But that's a blow your mind sort of a moment. Don't you think? James is there to see that personally. He's not going down this hill looking and feeling the same. Jesus has to tell the, deep, the disciples after this, don't tell anybody about this until after the resurrection. Don't tell them what you saw here until after the resurrection because you're just going to blow a bunch of people's minds and it's not going to help. It's just going to cause confusion. So just keep this under your hat. Can you imagine doing that? I mean... 
Peter, James, and John must have to wander off by themselves once in a while just to talk about this. Did that really happen? And by the way, Peter, what the heck? What do you mean build, build booths for these guys? What were you thinking? Well, I wasn't actually thinking. Well, yeah, that's clear. Again. Can you imagine how the sons of, the sons of thunder handled Peter's outbreaks? Shut up, man. You know? Well, there's a lot of stories you want to know about what happened with these guys while they were traveling. Because we just get, again, just a bare minimal highlight reel of those three and a half years. When Luke is writing, he says, or John's writing, he says, if, there, if, I, if I tried to fill up, if I tried to tell you all the stories, it'd fill up more books than, can be, than the world can contain. So just let your imagination consider what would happen to you after you had seen what they had seen. Now then there's the Samaritan incident. I don't know if you're familiar with this one. The Samaritan incident. It's, it's recorded in, the, in, in this way. Jesus, he, sent messengers on ahead. So they're coming. Jesus has a group of disciples with him. You don't take 13 guys into a local inn without some warning. You know, you go on hot wire and you call ahead and you see if there's room, right? You go on kayak and you see the comparative prices. You do something to prepare because there's 13 of you about to show up. You need, you need some place with some space. And so he sent someone on ahead who went into the Samaritan village near where they were to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him. Note the notice. Note the reason. Because he was headed for Jerusalem. Who, does, who doesn't get along? Jews and Samaritans. Right? Jesus is headed for Jerusalem. They are not happy about that. They are not welcoming him, in, welcoming him into their town. Sometimes we think only the Jews were bitter toward the Samaritans. No, usually the Samaritans were also bitter toward the Jews. This was a mutual dislike society. So they say, no, you can't come into our town. Too bad. You and your 13 guys can sleep outside somewhere. We don't care. When the disciples, James and John, the sons of thunder, heard about it, they asked, Lord, I love, that they, I love that they actually think they can do this. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? Does that ever enter your mind? These guys actually think they can do this. They said, hey, you say the word, we'll zap these guys. Ashes. It's amazing that they think they can do this. It's, it, it's, it's humorous to me that they think they... Because I don't think they can do this. I think they could... I think Jesus could have said, Okay, go ahead. And they could have stood there all day going, Okay. And all the rest of the disciples would have just been laughing at him. I think it would have just been a big embarrassment. That's probably why Jesus says, Oh, no, no, don't do that. You guys can't do that. What do you think this is? You're not, I am Jesus. I am God. You're just a, some guys following me around. Cool guys, I got that, but no, this ain't going to happen. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? Jesus turns and rebukes them. He says, I, I don't know exactly what he says, but he rebuked Peter. We talked about it last week. He rebukes these guys as well. Their personalities get ahead of their calling. Their personalities get ahead of their calling. Has that ever happened to you? 
God has called you to do or be a certain kind of thing. He's called you in a certain direction. And your personality, maybe your upbringing, maybe just your attitude gets ahead of your calling. Your mouth runs ahead of your mind. I know you quiet folks, that probably doesn't happen to you. It happens to me a lot. If something, your decision-making process gets ahead of you. Their, their personalities and their sons of thunderness, their sort of biker gang attitude, gets ahead of the calling of Jesus for them to reach the world on his behalf, that the world might be saved. They're, in, they're interested in fire called down out of heaven to prove a point. Let's turn this little patch of Samaria into a sheet of glass. We'll see what these people want to do after that. See if any of the rest of these villages want to let us come in. Now, it would have worked, right? Had they done that, everybody would have let them in, right? But why? Frightened of the power of Jesus and his disciples. Jesus, up to this point, has done nothing to scare people. He rebukes the, the, the Pharisees, the inner circle of those who are claiming to follow God. But he doesn't do things to frighten them. He doesn't intentionally scare people into obedience. And he doesn't do that to us either. It's one of the things that I hate about the doctrine that people teach about an eternal burning hell. I just don't like the doctrine. Because it speaks of a God who's mean, who should be feared and avoided. And, and I think there's better news in Scripture about that. They want to call fire because their personality has gotten ahead of their calling and Jesus has to rein them back in. Kind of a compass reset like we talked about with Peter. Then, there's blind ambition. Anybody ambitious? Don't raise your hand. We probably ought to know it anyway. Anybody just ambitious? You, 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 know, you, like, you want to get ahead? You want to be at the front of the line? You want to be the guy who's leading the group? You want to be out there doing this, making things happen? Anybody here ambitious? If you, in your own soul, you know that I'm, I'm kind of an ambitious type. I'm, I'm the guy who wants to go first. I'm the guy who wants to lead the group. I want the, I'm the guy who wants people to do what I tell them to do. I don't know where, you're, where you are with that, but that, that's who we're talking about. James and John, and, and Matthew says they bring their mommy. James and John, the sons, I love that they bring their mommy. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, bring mommy, came forward to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, how do you like this for an opening negotiation line? You walk into a sales meeting and you say, hi, board of directors and people who spend money in this hospital or in this, in this business, in this car dealership, whatever. You walk in and you say to the, to the head of the council of teachers in your, in your school, I want you guys to do whatever I ask you to do. Once you agree to that, we'll move on. What are your chances on that? Pretty slim, right? Pretty, pretty slim. I want you to do whatever we ask of you. He said to them, what is it you want me to do? Would you have answered that way? Now, he doesn't actually say yes. He says, I would like a little more information. Before I say yes to you, what is it that you actually want me to do? What is it that you want me to do? And they said to him, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one at your left in your glory. 
Now, if you look at the context of this statement, Jesus has told them about the death and resurrection by now. And so the, they're at least beginning to get the idea that something pretty spectacular is about to happen. Now, stop and think for a second. Can you put a couple of scenes together from what we've been talking about? They've seen the transfiguration. And now Jesus is talking about a resurrection. Can you imagine them going, okay, everything's coming into focus now. I get what's about to happen here. Right? They've seen the transfiguration. Now Jesus is talking about a resurrection. They're starting to say, hey, I think we get this. We, I think we understand what's going to happen. You're going to do some really awesome, amazing God thing. We want to be right-hand and left-hand man. And, of course, James would be on the right because he's James the Greater. Right? He's the big brother. He's the oldest. He has the right to sit on the right hand. So in reality, what's being said here by James and his brother John is can James sit on the right and John sit on the left? Can we do that? Do you remember when the disciples are sitting around the table at the Last Supper? Do you remember who's leaning on Jesus' breast? To quote the King James. John. Do you remember which hand most people eat with? The right. So you lean this way, right? He's leaning towards John. John is right here in his chest. John's right there. And they're eating. Who's on the other side? Who does Jesus dip his bread with? He dips bread and hands it to the person. Judas is on the other side. James isn't sitting on Jesus' right. Judas is. Can you imagine the scramble for seats around the table in a culture where sitting on the right and left is a big deal? Judas on his right. John on his left. When they ask this, how do you think this goes over for the rest of the disciples? Bible says, and the rest of the disciples were angry with them for having done this. You know why? Because they wish they had gotten there first. Everybody wants these two positions. Nobody wants to be the guy sitting at the end of the table. They all want to be on the right and the left because that signifies how important you are. It's not good enough that James, John, and Peter are in on everything. No matter what, they're always there. They want assurances that when the resurrection takes place, when this transfiguration happens again, they get in first. And Matthew says they brought their mommy. So here's the interesting thing about this guy. He left no writings. He has a short ministry. He probably dies within... Like I said, no more than a maximum of 15 years of the resurrection of Jesus. So the shortest of all the ministries of the disciples. And yet, he is still two things. One of the inner circle of Jesus. You say his name over and over again. You enter Peter, James, and John. Or you enter James and John in the scripture. And there it is again and again and again. James, John, Peter. James, John, Peter. Peter, James, John. James, John, Peter. They're always doing things with Jesus. They're his closest friends. And I have a, I have a friend named Curtis. He and his wife, 
just took a 500-mile walk this fall. Now, think about that. It's not a stroll. 500 miles is a long way to go. But they went on a... What has become a pilgrimage through northern Spain? They started up near the border with France in the Pyrenees. And they walked the Camino de Santiago. 500 miles along a trail that's been walked for hundreds of years in honor of the travels of of, of James in Spain. It's an interesting thing. He left no writings. He had a short ministry. But if, if anything is accurate about his movements to Spain, he's legendary with the people he taught about Jesus. What qualified him? He was willing to find and follow the Messiah. What qualified him? He was willing to have some adjustments made to his decision-making process. What qualifies him? He was willing to talk to people about Jesus. What qualifies disciples to be disciples? It's not that they're awesome. Because none of these guys are awesome. They become awesome. They become amazing. But when these stories start, none of these guys is particularly great in their own right. Probably the most qualified of the bunch is the one who lets Jesus down, Judas. James and John, they apparently are a little bit more of an upper, uh, upper middle class. So if you think of Peter as blue-collar, working-class, mouthy guy, and you think of James and John, you've got to look sort of an upper middle class. So if you think of yourself as sort of that you know, blue-collar sort of a person, go with Peter. If you think of yourself as sort of that grown up in an upper middle class family, go with James and John. These are people like us. Their only qualification that they were willing to follow. Looking for the Messiah and going where he's leading. That's all it takes for you and I to be disciples. The steps from there are simply next step, next step, next step, next step, next step. That's all that's really happening with these guys. They're just taking the next step. What legacy will be yours when you die? Will it be your house? When you die is the big plan to leave your house to your kids. Is that your plan? I'm going to leave my house. It's a cool house. I'm going to leave it to my kids. To, to leave the rest of your retirement that you don't burn up traveling around the country. Is that going to be your legacy? I'm going to leave my kids that you know, legacy. Now, I'm not, I'm not against any of that. I'm, a, I'm very much for trying to help the next generation just to, to pass some of what you've gained in your life in, in terms of wealth and those things on. To, to pass your experiences and your, and, and your own understanding of things on. I'm, I'm all for doing that. But what's the real legacy of your life? Are your children your legacy? Do you have any eternal children? You see, these guys have eternal children. These guys have taught people about God, and there's an eternal lineage that flows out from them. Some of us are on that list. We don't know where we connect. We don't know which disciple we connect to. We just know that somebody talked to somebody, talked to somebody, talked to somebody, talked to somebody, and got to us. 
Where does it go from there? What's your eternal legacy? Is there anybody who will, who will talk in the next generation about you because you told them about your following of Jesus? Because the rest of it's kind of interesting and, and, and good experiences and, 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 and all right and fun. But what's the legacy of your life? What's the next generation going to say about you when they look back? My kids are afraid I'm going to become a crazy, grumpy old bald guy because I'm already most of the way there. I'd like for them to have more than that to say. What I like about this is when you read stories about these guys, and you, you look at pictures drawn of Peter, he looks like a grumpy old bald guy. I'm in for that. But what is your discipleship legacy? What has following Jesus done to you? And how will the next generation know? Let's pray. Father God, there, there are many, many things about us that seem to disqualify us from being your followers. Some of us have been sons of thunder. Some of us are ambitious to our own fault. Some of us want to punish those who aren't following you the way we think they should. All of us see ourselves in the faults of the disciples. And we wonder if it's possible for us to be qualified to do what they did. Thank you for showing us the good, the bad, and the ugly here. Thank you for making it clear to us that these men were in many ways just like us. Help us to emulate the things that transformed their lives. Help us to be willing to follow to have our path corrected by you and to share our experience with the ones who are coming after. In Jesus' name.